Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. Hi everyone, welcome back. This episode is part two of a two-part discussion regarding the basics of neuraxial anesthetic techniques for caesarean. If you haven't already, um, please encourage you to listen to the first episode as this episode will make much more sense. We will talk about topping up an epidural, but I think maybe we should talk about how, um, with the CSC and the single shot spinal, how when you lie them down, how to manage the hypotension, because that's a spinal anaesthetic-specific event. So you lie them down, um, and we won't talk about testing the block, because we can do that for all the techniques. Um, But quite often these patients now, they have, um, in fact, spinal anaesthesia back in the 60s and 70s was thought to be a dangerous technique for caesareans Mm. because of this. Um, because of this um, hypotension that occurs after the block comes on, how do we manage it nowadays? What are the things we do to prevent the patient and the, uh, the mother and the fetus from suffering a prolonged period of hypotension? Um, so the way I would think about this is vasopressors. So we usually have phenylephrine running at about, depending on the patient, maybe about 30 mils an hour titrating. Yep. Um, and then fluid resuscitation so we you know every patient that has a spinal anesthetic of any sort or a csc obviously we need to make sure we've got a well working cannula um, attached to fluids and um, giving them a fluid bolus or you know just ensuring that we're giving them adequate um, uh, iv fluids and then the other thing that you want to also think about is the patient slash um, the the fetus mother as well that um, the unit and therefore a left lateral t- tilt um, uh, to, to stop that aorta um, compression. Yeah. So compression of the vena cava. Yeah. Yep. So I think it's going back to fluids because that's mm. probably um, uh, the first thing. The evidence for preloading them is is um, that you shouldn't bother. It's, yeah. it's all about co-loading. Isn't it? So mm. as soon as the block's in, then you can run in some fluid. Mm. And that seems to be beneficial. Is that correct? That, that's my understanding. Yeah. And uh, look, when I started out, we used to preload and used to... Right in a litre. It just ends up in their ankles. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> and probably and the actual evidence of benefit is, is limited, but yeah. co-loading, so giving fluid after the spinal block is in. Yeah, so or at over, the time of the spinal placement. Yeah, so that's over the next sort of 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Yep. And so, so that, that you know brings us back to having a cannula that's big enough to... To allow that. Yeah. To allow it and, yep. and, to, and to think about that. And, and maybe over the years when we don't use so much fluid sometimes the vasopressors just start going up and I see there's no fluid going in to fill this big expanded circulation. So I yeah. think, you know, think about vasopressors, but also think yeah. about co-loading. So yeah. I have this, so when, when I lie the patients down now, they, you know, I do the block, you lie them down, I have this like, it's it's sub, unconscious, I don't really know I'm doing it, but I'm always looking at the, the IV fluids to make sure they're running. Mm. Because and, um, a, they need a co-load, but B, I know that the phenylephrine or metaraminol or whatever vasopressor you're using is probably not getting to yeah. where it needs to be in a timely fashion if it's not running. And often, you know, the number of times when I'm doing these cases, um, you know, the patients put their hands on their chest because they're getting slid onto a bed or, or they've kinked the cannula or bent their arm to do something and there's nothing going in at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know, so you have to be really... This is a time of heightened vigilance yeah. You've just done the spinal and you have to really concentrate on what's happening yeah. <coughs> with the hemodynamics. And, you know, um, keep an eye on heart rate as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, with a sympathetic block, that you get blockage of your cardiac accelerator nerves, heart yep. rate comes down, 
plus the reflex bradycardia or phenylephrine, yeah. sometimes your blood pressure may be low, but if you're not actually measuring heart rate, your heart so, rate is actually 30, giving yeah. more vasopressor. So the spinal goes in and you, sort of, be beneficial. you sort of need to have like um, the blood pressure cuff going every minute uh, and you'd be really vigilant that the fluids are still running and that someone has turned on and connected the vasopressor. Mm, yeah. So the number of times I've seen vasopressor like being bolused onto the ground because the, the tubing hasn't been connected to the cannula. And you're like, why is this not working? <laughs> <laughs> why is my patient vomiting in the blood pressure 60? I'm going to have to report this dodgy family friend that doesn't work. And mm. then you realise that actually the half, half of your family friend's syringe is on the ground and then you connect it up and they can one mil and they're fine. Mm. <laughs> and, and I think like you said, Shilpa, about yep. you know, telling the patient to, you know, they might pick up the hypertension before yep. your monitor does. Yep. So let them know that nausea is a sign sometimes yep. of hypotension and to, to, to sing out don't feel yep. afraid to, to say you can sometimes see it around the lips as well you can yeah. see the perfusion just draining away yep. and just going you know back to vasopressors it, we could use phenylephrine metaramyl, noradrenaline yep. there's they evidence of benefit of all of those and both bolusing and infusion yep. yes, and sometimes right. you know something to pick the heart rate up is a good thing as well and when we started Roger we were just using ephedrine because the initial evidence from sheep studies was that well, vasopressors yeah, were... You're obviously a bit older. <laughs> when I started, yeah. we were using phenylephrine. <laughs> but that's right. <laughs> we won't dwell on that. <laughs> um, but, but it's not to say that, you know, ephedrine is not a... You haven't, haven't weathered well, Roger. Looking, you know. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm probably making lies because when I was in Queensland, which was my first job, which was off the training room, uh, they were just using boluses of ephedrine. So, yeah. But they were a bit behind so there. back in my day. Sorry, apologies to all yeah, Queensland sorry, no, health it's just history <laughs> lessons of no relevance at all, other than to say that, you know, you know, vasopressors used to be avoided because yep. of concerns about umbilical artery vasoconstriction, yep. and this was born out in sheep studies. You know, and then it took Warwick McGankey to realise sheep weren't like... Humans. Humans, <laughs> and, um, and the, the, the opposite is true, that ephedrine yep. actually increases... Um, the, uh, the fetal um, yeah. metabolic acidosis. But that's not to say it's not a useful thing to give, you know, if, yeah. if, if sometimes you need Especially if something to speed the heart rate up if you have yeah. bradycardic and hypotension, hypertensive. But essentially, short answer, made very long, use vasopressors and fluids to yeah. maintain yeah. blood pressure yeah. and aortic um, cable decompression. So most people are probably going to be using phenylephrine because they're pre-made syringes. So it's a phenylephrine is like 100 mics per mil and a standard sort of starting rate is 30 mils an hour. And if you need to give a bolus, you usually give one mil at a time. Uh, and then, you know, if it needs to go up or down, you titrate it. Yep. Um, but basically, you've got to be vigilant. If the blood pressure is too high, turn it down a bit. If it's, if it's low, you, you know, don't just turn the rate up. So say someone's blood pressure is 60 over 40 and you've got the phenylephrine running at 30 mils an hour. Don't just turn it up to 40 mils an hour. You have to give a bolus because yep. uh, it's going to take like 20 minutes for that rate change to have any effect. Um, I guess it's just you've got to be familiar with how to run vasopressors. Um, and mo- hopefully most people will. But as, if mm. you're just starting out, um, you, you may not be, um, it may not be, uh, what's the word? No, yeah, yeah, you just haven't enough experience to know what to do. But I think um, that's sound advice, Roger, that, you know, just being hypervigilant yep. at the time of from spinal block to delivery almost, yep. you know, because once you've delivered, things often improve on the blood pressure side of things. Um, so we're getting there. This is we're going to split this into two podcasts, I think. But um, so getting back to um, positioning for to avoiding cable compression. So um, 
you might they might still throw around the word aorta cable compression, but it's really vena cable compression mm. that matters. The aorta the, the aorta doesn't get compressed because it's a um, a high pressure. Um, so if you do, if you tilt someone. Uh, laterally on a bed or something like that, you know, stick a wedge under them, you can usually get them sort of tilted, or their abdomen tilt, or pelvis tilted more than 25 to 30 degrees, which usually will relieve vena cable compression. When they're on the operating table, um, the most you can hope for by tilting the table is about, what, 10, to 10 or 12 degrees, which uh, most of the evidence says um, that it doesn't actually do much. And that yeah, if you really want to do something, you might have to actually do lateral displacement. So you mm-hmm. go, go and grab their ab, uh, their um, um, their abdomen, or uh, and you pull it laterally to try and get the laterally displace the the, um, the gravid uterus. I'm trying. I'm struggling with my language today. Aren't I? <laughs> These guys are not helping. Yeah, they they like to see me sink into the mud. We're just watching. <laughs> so laterally displace the uterus. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Because if you try and tilt them 25 degrees, they'll slide off the table. Mm. Yep. Okay. Any other comments? Well, I think still keep doing it. You know, oh, there, absolutely. There, there some studies have come out saying it's you know no benefit, but yep. I think for some people there is benefit, and and you know some will, women will lie flat, and you know their gravid uterus is displaced already, and others have a very sort of proud bump. Everyone's a bit different. I think we yeah. don't, we don't know what's going on there, so. Yeah, using appropriate aortic cable compression, a decompression is important. And sometimes, you know, if your blood pressure already is in the boots, getting the patient onto their side yeah. can just make everything just better. Yeah, mm. and you can do that on the operating situations. table if you really have to. Absolutely. Um, mm. But often, just giving a lot of fluid and um, giving boluses of vasopressor, um, you get them sorted within a minute yeah. or two. Yeah, huge majority. Don't forget how much, how many staff members we have in theatres that can help. Yeah. Um, you know, if we were really struggling. Um, a, a, a manual sort of uterine displacement can easily be done by one of the obstetric team or one of the, the nursing staff as well. So I guess use your resources. Um, right, let's step back. We'll go back to epidural top-ups now. So patients who come to theatre. Because <laughs> we're going to... Because we are going to... So we've talked about this because sort of vasopressors mm. are something that is used mainly mm. when you've done a spinal. Yep. But you very infrequently need to run... You know, high dose um, or you know, heavy duty vasopressors when someone has an epidural top up. Um, so, so when someone comes to theatre for a non-elective caesarean, usually with an epidural in, what, uh, what's your approach, Matt? My first approach is to roll them onto their side and have a look at the epidural, yep. and just make sure it's not hanging out, yep. or there's a big collection of fluid because my top up is not going to be very effective if that's the case. Yeah. Um, and you want to make sure that everything's all all good there, and it, it's so easy to do. You literally yeah. just just roll over on onto their side. Yeah. Sorry, that's, now it's me. <laughs> I've got to advertise the talk for tomorrow morning. Okay. <clears throat> um, yeah, just check it's all it's all um, all intact, and there isn't a huge collection of fluid. Um, and then I would aspirate, and, yep. and again, this has been borne out from, again, the evidence for this might be a little bit limited, but I was caught out by an intrathecal catheter once that I topped up going down the corridor to yes. the theatre. Patients, you thought the patient wasn't talking to you because they didn't speak English, but I did, that's right. because they were, yeah, so they because were, they were no longer conscious. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, when I did aspirate it subsequently, it was, um, it was, it was easy to aspirate clear fluid, so... 
be be alert to, especially if you haven't put the epidural in or you haven't been with the patient recently or just haven't had much yep. discussion with them. Um, and just, you know, that case as an example, this was a, a patient that had had a, um, an epidural put in for labour pain and the midwife said it's been working beautifully. Hasn't required any additional <laughs> top of an eye. And the patient couldn't speak English, which, which you know, and again, it was my failure for not really assessing that more formally. Yep. So, look, I, I would recommend just a quick aspiration. So I, I turn up with a, uh, an empty 5ml syringe, quick aspiration, and then a syringe of a local anaesthetic mix to yep. top up the epidural. <clears throat> uh, what do we normally use to top up an epidural if you're happy that it's an, an epidural and it's working well and it's, it's not leaking? Uh, so we, we use, in, in, in lots of parts of Australasia and, and the world, a mix of 2% lignocaine with adrenaline. Yep. To which we might add some other um, adjuncts like sodium bicarbonate to alter the pH. And, you know, we might add some fentanyl. The evidence for the fentanyl is a little bit grey, but especially if your epidural has been in for a long time, you've, you've got a lot of fentanyl already in the space and yeah. the systemic absorption is quite high. Uh, but certainly 2% lignocaine... Uh, with adrenaline seems to um, provide a more rapid onset of block and some of the studies show that it's associated with more reliable um, anaesthesia and less yep. failure requiring general anaesthesia compared to other things like um, bupivacaine. Yep. But there are other solutions you can use. Yep. Repivacaine, 0.75%. Yep. Chlorprocaine in the US. Yep, which we won't talk about because we don't have it available. So not only it, it, no one here would have used it. Um, and in terms of volumes, I would, um, you know, first dose, three to five mils. Mm. Yep. And then just be with the patient and yep. assess um, onset of block. And, and typically I would do that. The easiest way I find is to use motor block. Yep. To ask for a straight leg raise. Yep. Because I think that's something that will go quickly before, you know, you might pick it up with a sensory block. And look at blood pressure and just, again, you know, that level of hyper-awareness that, you know, we're, we're putting local anaesthetic down a, a catheter, which might have migrated, and just be very alert with those first few doses. Yeah, that's right. But what if you get a um, sensory block but not a motor block with epidural top-ups? Are you happy with that? Mm, for a caesarean yeah. section? Yeah. I'm, I'm not. I, yeah. I like to see a good motor block. Yeah. Yeah. They can still move usually, but they can't. It's they've, they've lost yeah. strength and they're having a lot of difficulty. So it has to be obvious that they go, oh god, yeah. Where look at, yeah. yeah. I think if you do have, I mean, if you think about it, you know, you could be running, a, <coughs> you know, a low dose labour epidural mm-hmm. and have a sensory block to T four. Yeah, but if you were to stick a knife in, probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't want to do the cesarean section on that. So, so I think we're going to talk about testing the block, but it's yeah. it's, it's quite well, a complex well, we thing to do. We sort of have started already, yeah. so yeah. let's keep going. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I thought I was still the, the local anaesthetic. Because I think um, so. So you've got to test the block no matter what in your axial anaesthetic technique you use. Your spinal mm-hmm. CSC, mm-hmm. epidural top up. The ones where you've got to really um, be vigilant of, or you sort of be more fit, uh, meticulous about, are the epidural top ups mm-hmm. because they are the more likely ones to not be adequate. Um, where you might have a block now, but it's, it's true of any of the blocks. Uh, but spinals and uh, mm-hmm. so and CSE is a, ty- a type of spinal where are more are reliable, aren't they? Exactly. Are more reliable, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then the block is dense. Although oh, I would um, say that in general they tend to wear off quicker than an epidural top up that's worked mm-hmm. well. Like an epidural top up that works well hangs around longer. But um, 
Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the evidence would suggest that epidural top up is more likely to fail, and we know that yeah. from from our own yep. data here as well. Um, and then for obvious reasons, you know, yep. it's in a catheter in a in a fairly in a bigger space that's more got more things in it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I you're talking, yeah, struggling now too. My stroke there. That's good. Thanks. Um, I think it's the 53 minute mark, which is what's uh, killing us all. <laughs> yes, but look, you know, block testing. I think we're getting is, close is, to the end. Um, is really critical. Can, can I just point out an article on this that's just come out and, yep. and about pain with cesarean sections in July, uh, May of this year, uh, yep. anaesthesia, an article by Felicity Platt, free to access, maybe put it on the... Yep, I can put on the link on this page yep. because it it takes you through, you know, why we need to test the block and how to do it and how to manage pain at cesarean section. And it's, yep. it's, a, it's a very topical thing at the moment Absolutely. and it's um, I, I just don't think we've been doing it as well as we perhaps could yep um so when we're testing the block um so we've talked about motorbike but what about testing sensation so with this you know mm-hmm. this to this touch and uh, i assume run, run us through how to check te- how to test the block and there's with those pain as well there's pinprick sensation pinprick, as yep. well yeah so how do we do that just the sort of basics so you can use well okay well, let's start with temperature yep so we typically we use cold rather than Heat, so we use uh, a loss of <laughs> loss of sensation to cold, and there are, there are different ways of doing that. Um, the ice cube with something out of the, you know, we use a um, I don't know what you ice call block. it, yeah, like a, like a, a, block, a frozen um, frozen ice block thing. Frozen it's a heat pack. That's but we freeze it. Don't yeah. it? it's like those blue, so. it's a squishy thing. Squishy thing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we use a frozen heat pack. <laughs> yeah. I know I didn't. It's lacking heat. Didn't realise that. Okay, so <laughs> so you can use a frozen heat pack. Yeah, we suck the heat out of it and it goes cold. Okay, um, <laughs> you can use ethyl chloride spray if yep. you still have it, um, and the evaporation causes um, a temperature drop. Yep, uh, you can use those artificial ice things, which I snap the chemical ones, which yeah. chemical ones, which I have high issues with from the environmental impact. Yep. But, um, but they are uh, they're, they're good. Um, they're good when you have. Um, uh, freezers that aren't working or this, you know you only occasionally checking blocks yep yep um so that's uh cold yep. and um and you want it to a t4 which is the level of the nipples so no they, they shouldn't be able to feel cold so when you touch them uh on the skin it shouldn't feel cold at all should it yeah, and, and here so lies the problem. So here's because the problem. As you, as you go up, go, it's not as cold. Be, and you're yeah. like, oh, but is it cold? Oh, it's cold. It's cold, but yeah. it's not as cold. Yeah. yeah. And then you keep going and then it's, wow, that's really cold. Yeah. So, so there is this kind of, you know, one, two, three dermatome blur where yes. it's a bit unclear as to what dermatome that is, which is why, you know, some researchers have advocated touch testing. Yep. Um, and that's now being more strongly advocated. Um and uh, simply because if you reach a predefined dermatome, so how do it you, seems to be more significant, uh, more you, sensitive. How do you actually test? Because I don't do it. How do you actually? So test? again, lots of different ways of doing it, and they've been studied. And you can use, you know, the neurological approach with neurotip, neurotip tester pins, which are you know those little bendy wires. Yep. You can use cotton wool. Yep. You so can if they use can't your finger. Wool. You can use the patient. Can do it themselves. They can sort of just touch. The, with their finger, of course. If you if you touch too hard, then you're getting to sort of proprioception. Mm. Yes. So you have to just touch them lightly with cotton wool. Touch them lightly with something. Yeah. And yeah. say, can you feel us? And if mm-hmm. they can, it's either they can or they can't. Yeah. Okay. 
And but it has to be like obviously like a, a touch and not like a drag because obviously then that's proprioception, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So look, it's it's not you know having having been in places where this was almost not mandated but recommended mm. um, to being in places where cold is used. It, it is it is perhaps harder with touch for the patient to feel that difference. But when you do start doing it, you know, it's actually relatively straightforward. And the, the feeling from the studies is that if you get a, it's the, the level is lower than um, coal. So an acceptable level with testing with touch is T5. Okay. Um, and then the question is, where's T5? Because we don't have a landmark for T5. Yeah. What's this um, if you stand That's T6, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind yeah, of that's and then T6 T4. And bit, yeah. yeah, so somewhere in between. So it's so between look, I think T4 and T6? Yeah. So, so, so that's that's a potential issue as well. But interesting, yeah. the, the, uh, the 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 review article I just mentioned um, recommends now testing with touch. Yep. So, look, it's something we haven't really talked much about in Australia, mm-hmm. um, but it's also being advocated in the US as well, um, and as well as the UK. So, yep. uh, but look, it's not just about testing to the sensory level. So, say for example, doing a spinal block, I. I think it's everything, you know, it's, it's yes. looking at that sensory block, it's looking at that motor block, the it's looking at the block. onset of the block, the sympathetic block, the yeah, the blood pressure coming down a little bit. Yep. It's all those things. It's, it's much more sort of complex. And then the surgeons will usually, you know, they're, they're taught well, they'll get their um, uh, forceps. forceps and they'll pinch really um, firmly over the incision site, you know, the fan and steel incision site, but they'll also um, usually grab um, the umbilicus firmly with the forceps too and check up there um, and I've, yeah, I've, some, I've had and patients who've actually said that's painful. ouch that's a pinch that, yeah that's right that, yeah. that upsets me I'm usually not happy if, mm. the, if that's their response because they're feeling pain at the umbilicus yeah. um, even if your ice test you know your test for cold sensation has been mm. has been reassuring and that, that's less reassuring so it's often a lot more grey than, than yeah. in real it life is, and you're never yeah. really sure you know and I feel like, again, I think we're reiterating the same thing, but I feel like that happens more so with epidural top-ups than it does with it does, um, yep. single-shot spinal slash commander. There's a lot of communication, and, not, and often the epidural top-ups are in the emergency caesareans where there may be a degree of urgency. Yep. Yeah. And so there's concern for the fetus. Obstetricians are worried about what's happening with the baby. You're worried about the surgeon starting and the patient having a lot of pain, and then you're in this situation where there's an open abdomen and a patient screaming in agony and... A baby that's distressed, and um, you know, yeah, there's a lot of situational factors. So there's a lot of situational factors, and it can be complicated. So plus you've got the you know the potential of missed segments as well, likely with with epidurals. Yes, and also remember to check the sacral region as well, especially with epidural top ups. Yeah, Um, I I must admit I don't check that, but I I, I usually Mm. ask them to move their legs and things, and if they've got a motor block. But yes, yeah. Look, I I think over the years, you know, a patient that can sort of lift one leg up in the air. That makes me worried too. It worries me, you know, and yeah. I, I have experienced that even though the sensory block seems perfectly adequate, um, sometimes I'll end up getting pain on that side where yeah. that leg is being lifted. So I, I think to give you some, again, there's no certainty, but to give you some reassurance, you know, a bilateral motor block at straight leg raise is, is a reassuring thing. Yes. Wiggling the feet around, the toes seems to be entirely possible. I can't explain it anatomically, but... Can you? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, there's only two. But other. test the block plus also record it as well. Yes. Yep. 
That's right. And be be aware. Uh, just be ready to change to a general anesthetic if required. Okay. And, sorry, Roger. Just just to backtrack. You know, we're talking about testing with different modalities. You know, yep. I, th- I think the current practice within Australia is is an acceptable is level is is loss of cold sensation to T four. Yeah. But I I do th- just watch the space over yep. here. But I think I that think so. be, don't start you know getting your neurotip tester pin <laughs> off Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, what? <laughs> I'm I'm definitely ordering one tonight. <laughs> Okay, um, so a few. Uh, we're just going to have a few other things. I, th- I think maybe we should just like mention the basics, so we don't um, go into too much detail. Oxytocin at delivery. Um, what what usually happens? Uh, the, the baby comes out. What, what's our usual common regimens? Um, so I guess it depends on whether this patient has been in labour for a significant period of time and has been on oxytocin. Uh, infusions in labour ward versus yep. a elective caesarean section. Um, so in our institution, we use majority of the times use carbotocin as yep. a um, the hundred mics as a um, bolus of um, oxytocin in the elective caesarean section. If this patient was a, um, a emergency caesarean section, again been on oxytocin infusion for a while, we might give them a bolus of oxytocin or cento and then have them on an infusion yep. um, and then the the duration of the the infusion post operatively obviously depends on the tone of the patient sorry tone of the uterus and um, the decision of the obstetricians as well and then there's other um, do we want to do we want to go through all of them we'll leave I don't think we'll let's not go through all the other oxytocin because okay. we went through that in detail in the, mm, PPA. In the PPH yeah. one that's yep. what I thought, yeah. But I think that's really key. Key yep. point, Shilpa, yep. is, as you say, you know, if you've been in labour, need more. Yep. Yep. And if you're, you know, elective and haven't been in labour, you need yep. less. Yep. Yep. And so just give the carbotocin and the bolus <coughs> just gently. Um, yep. So even the carbotocin, um, you know, give, give it as a slow IV injection. Oh, another, absolutely. Another oh, what do you mean by slow, Roger? I would give it over five minutes. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people oh. give it even uh, a lot quicker than that. Yeah. But I, I, I mix it up. I never realised the significant hypotension mm. it causes until yeah. I had a, a patient that I had an arterial line in, and as I was giving, and I, I, I don't give it as a mm. like a quick push. It was a slow bolus, but it was still a slow bolus, and very quickly I noticed that high, uh, that uh, arterial line trace dropping and systolic within the fifties, mm. um, and I think you know. I wouldn't have ever known that had I not had an arterial yeah. line in mm. for that particular patient. I give maybe a third of it and then I'll wait two, two or three minutes mm. and give them another mm. third and then another two minutes and give another third. Yeah. Yep. Just be mindful. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I think it's a good practice. No, no, I think an elective Caesar, you know, a third yeah. of the dose is probably it's heaps. all that's yeah. required. By the time I get around to giving them the next yeah. bit, they haven't even removed the placenta. So it's, yeah. it's not, you know, that urgent. Mm. Yeah. Um, Post-operative analgesia, this is the last thing we've got to talk about. Oh, we could talk about nausea and shivering and itch and high block. I suppose those are, those, those are common intraoperative oh. problems. So we haven't met, or we should talk about common intraoperative problems. So you might have a good block and you, you start and then how do we manage all these things? Oh, God, this is going to go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I, think we should, um, I think we though. should definitely talk about pain if yes. we haven't done that already. Let's talk about yep. pain in intraoperatively. Yep. I think that's very significant. Yes, that's, that's the most important one. As, as anaesthetists, that's something I guess we want to... Yeah, to we've, we've alluded to it the whole way along, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so what should we do when we have pain? So... How do you approach this? I uh, I sort of split it up into two 
two models, you know, severe pain early on before the baby's out. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's, a, it's a less severe sort of mild pain, where and which usually occurs as you know, say once the baby's out and they're closing, and it's um, you know there's less urgency. And you can discuss or try lots of different mm-hmm. options. Is that how you sort of roughly yeah, split yeah, it, roughly split yeah. it in your head? And again, it's it's trying to assess that degree of distress, isn't it? Yeah. And, and whether you call it pain or discomfort. distress or discomfort, mm. um, and and sometimes you know teasing out whether it is pain or not can be difficult but yep. and I think this is you know where the conversations with this are is that it it's it's got to be framed from the patient's yes point of view and if it's distressing even though it's not necessarily painful it's still distressing mm. yeah and we've got to deal with that so I, I you know I think us trying to verbalize the degree of pain is um We've got to be a bit careful with that. Yeah. But I think we've got to, you know, acknowledge what they're saying. Yep. But I would agree, you know, if it's coming at the early part of the cesarean section, then you're probably not going to get through the rest of it mm-hmm. comfortably. Yeah. Uh, obviously, if you're in a, a, a ability to speak and discuss the options with the patient, then that's the right thing to do. But I think we do have to move away from seeing block failure as a failure on our behalf and moving on and managing it appropriately is the mm-hmm. right thing to do. Yep. But believe the patient. You've got to believe what they're saying. Yep. And then in terms of options, again, yeah, it's going to depend on, on how the patient thinks that pain is uh, rather than how we think it is and um, yeah. and where we are with the surgery. And they have the surgery. Yes, informed consent mm-hmm. decision with them. But often you can make strong recommendations um, if, you know, you, if you feel strongly that they should have a general anaesthetic and they're in agony and it's going to be ages, then yeah. um, you need to, you know, give them what you recommend as well, not just mm-hmm. not just completely, you know, for, make the decision theirs because mm-hmm. they've, they've never been here before uh, most of the time. Um, and look, yeah, if we've got an epidural, then obviously, well, number one, ask the surgeons to stop. Yep. If they can. Obviously, if they're halfway through delivering a baby, that's right. you might want that to continue. But yep. ask the patient to stop, um, r- assess things, uh, and obviously it will depend on whether you are an epidural in situ or, um, yeah, see where you are at the time of the surgery. Yep. And then, I always think about what you always uh, say, Matt. You know, the airway sort of failures that occur are usually more so mm. in the. You know, so if, if it is right at the start where you can ask the surgeons to stop and you've got a little bit more control because, you know, they they haven't totally opened an abdomen or, you know, you've got a little bit more control compared to later on yeah, where everything yeah. becomes a bit more emergent and yeah, once everything they, becomes a bit more stressful. Yeah. Once they incise the uterus, yeah. the surgeons are going to be very reluctant to stop for any period of time yeah. because, you know, Perfusion of the fetus is compromised, the, the woman's bleeding, and um, yeah. they're really just going to want to deliver the baby and yeah. try and stop the bleeding. Absolutely. So if they've opened the abdomen but they haven't incised the uterus yet, they may be happy to, to stop for a yeah. period and of time. Yeah, no, but you've got a window of opportunity, yeah. haven't you, yeah. To, yeah. to sort of work out yeah. how you're going to proceed. And yeah. having that conversation is, yeah. is good if you can, yeah. with, with everybody, surgeon, yeah. patient, and um, your own inner voice. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I think we've alluded to this before, but, you know, the setting the expectations because women, um, especially in an epidural top-up, they've come up for a, a non-elective caesarean section. They're a lot more stressed um, and therefore that differentiation between pain and pressure is, is quite significant, you know, and, they, they, um, and therefore setting those expectations is very important as well. Yep. Um, um, if they're... 
so 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 the you know if they need a GA, then obviously then you do a general anaesthetic. If it's milder pain, it's just like the block's wearing off a little bit, and they go, oh, it's feeling a bit uncomfortable now. But they, they don't want a general anaesthetic, and you you know discuss with them the fact that you could we could try some other things. Then, as Matt alluded, you can try some more analgesia down the epidural. Um, lignocaine is the fastest acting. If you had an epidural, anaesthetic. If they've got an epidural, yeah. yep. Okay. You can give them little bits of um, intravenous analgesia, which um, traditionally is usually something like fentanyl or alfentanyl. Even ketamine mm-hmm. sometimes has been used. Um, you got to be careful; you don't stray into the uh, into a general anaesthetic without an airway. Um, when you're using ketamine, I think um, it's mm. definitely, especially if they're unfasted, more so than uh, if, they're, if they're well fasted and had, had um, acid prophylaxis. Um, There's always a role for nitrous <coughs> as well. So you can use nitrous oxide. Yep. yep. Um, and I tend to, you know, in in that particular situation where it's towards the end, um, you've got, you know, for whatever reason, your spinal's wearing off. It's a maybe a slow operator. You know, it could be multiple reasons. But using a bit of local anaesthetic in the sheath mm-hmm. also helps. Yep. Um, so I I very quickly will ask the. It depends on obviously on what um, what level the. Um, the, the, the pain is occurring at, but I'll, I'll often ask them to um, infiltrate a little bit of um, local anaesthetic in the sheath as well. Yep. I've, I've found that very effective as well, Shilpa. Yep. And it is often those sort of cases which you just sort of drag their feet and they're dabbing away in one certain spot. Yep. And it's, you know, maybe on the right or the left and just ask them to, yeah, give them a syringe of 20, you know, 20 mils of 2% lignocaine with adrenaline. And yeah. You, and that's presumably if you haven't already given them lots, of, out, lots yeah. of local anaesthetic and the epidural. But just, yeah, just a few line. mils can, can just yeah. make it better. Um, and then there's some other sort of non-therapeutic <coughs> options like, you know, if the baby's sitting on the cot, bring the baby over to the mum. It can yeah, be an amazing analgesic. Yeah, especially if mentality. it's sort of, um, you know, it's really just uh, uh, just a bit of distraction and a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of maternal sort of anxiety driving their, um, um, their displeasure. Yeah. Yeah. Then and distraction the, helps. and reassurance and and i think you know it comes down to the conversations you have beforehand yeah that we're you know we, we've got ways of looking after them yep all right let's touch briefly you could probably do a whole podcast on post-operative analgesia but um uh, just t- touch briefly on the, the standard sort of general post-operative regimen that you would use for analgesia after a cesarean uh so i would use a uh, standard regimen of simple analgesic yeah um consisting of regular paracetamol and a regular anti-inflammatory and I wouldn't sort of worry too much about what anti-inflammatory you yeah. use there's much evidence Except between any of um, yeah so uh, keeping in mind probably avoid the anti-inflammatories and yeah uh, in the conditions yeah uh, or uh, renal dysfunction or yep. if they've had a significant bleed yeah um, and then I would add in some PRN um, analgesia as well combination of tramadol and an opioid either buprenorphine or oxycodone yep um, and uh, this is presumably I've used some intrathecal long-acting opioid. Yeah, and so um, yeah, as we will mention, the most commonly used in Australasia is uh, intrathecal morphine, which is you know standard dose would be about 100 micrograms. Epidural morphine is usually two or three milligrams. Um, some some people don't like, uh, or yeah, don't don't like to use neurexial morphine. It causes a lot of does cause a lot of itching, and there is. Now, depending on where you practice, some quite strict sort of observations required by the midwifery team for the next 24, 12 to 24 hours, which include you know, keeping an eye on their respirations and their bladder. Um, but I think, you know, to some extent, those risks can be mitigated by 
using appropriate doses. And yeah. certainly here, we've reduced our dose of intrathecal uh, morphine over the years, haven't we? Yeah. Consistent with research suggesting that the benefits remain, yep. but the disadvantages diminish to an extent. Um, yeah. And using prophylactic antiemetics at the time of surgery yeah, may so reduce that risk of nausea and vomiting and prescribing something for rich. Yep, uh, which is usually uh, we prescribe naloxone. Yep. Um, uh, 40 mics. Yeah, 40 Ish. to 50 mics. Um, and you can give it intravenously or subcutaneously. Most people have an IV. Uh, some people, instead of if if they haven't had um, neuraxial morphine or you know, if in the UK diamorphine, um, might prescribe uh, a day or two of uh, you know uh, controlled release uh, oral opioid, um, which I don't know strong. I don't have strong feelings about that. Um, and then um, you can use tap blocks as well, but I think the evidence for tap blocks is that if they've had intrathecal morphine, they don't, they don't add anything. Um, so no, we're talking about neurexal anesthesia. So I only really use tap blocks than someone who's had a GA season yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I think we've covered most things. Or if the epidural is left in, you might consider yeah, that's right, an yeah. epidural pethidine. Yeah, or, or in fact. If you occasionally, yeah, even you might even want to use a local anaesthetic technique down mm. the epidural. Yeah. If there's a patient, say for example, who's on methadone or some other mm. um, strong opioid and they've got opioid tolerance, um, that's that's useful to leave an epidural and and you use that for analgesia. It's quite a good um, technique. We've got to one hour and fifteen minutes of gas bagging. It <laughs> 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 uh, uh, doesn't even involve any of me, any obscure any anecdotes. anecdotes. So we've really talked our asses off. Mm. We've got a sore tongue, um, with fatigue. I'm going to need debriefing after this. <laughs> um, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Shilpa. We're definitely going to have to split this in the middle <laughs> somewhere. I thanks, Roger. We'll have to pick a spot probably where we started testing the block or somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> mm. Anyway, hopefully people have – anyone who's listened to this uh, this far along, it deserves a medal. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for being there, Mum. Uh, thanks for listening to the end. <laughs> okay, <laughs> see you again. See you again next time. Thanks, thanks guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>